2: Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. On the
3: line with us is Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, his latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. It's also available now as an ebook, book democracyatwork.info, rdwolff with two f's dot You can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. And Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. I'm, I'm wondering, Joe Biden, this uh, $1.9 trillion bill, you know, about to come out of the House, and already the Republicans and uh, Lawrence Summers and other idiots like him are out there going, oh, it's gonna cause inflation, you know? Don't forget the 1970s. Tell us about that.
4: Well, you know, it's dishonest. There's really no nice way of, of saying this. Look, here's the basic economics. If you're going to pump a great deal of money into the economy pretty quickly in a short amount of time, there is always a risk that that extra money will start chasing goods, land, buildings products of of our factories and so on and if that happens and if there's more money chasing goods than there are goods then the people with the money will bid up the price because there isn't enough goods to give everybody satisfaction in other words prices could rise that's always a risk but there is many factors that go into determining whether that risk will be realized for example If you have a surge in output of goods and services, that happens more or less at the same time as the extra money, there's no need for an inflation. In other words, the extra money will be met by extra goods, and there'll be no rationale or incentive to raise the prices. Likewise, if the position of the United States in the rest of the world in terms of exports and imports were to change for any one of a hundred different reasons, that could negate the impact. of extra money uh, on the price level. So to say suddenly that this particular increase in the money supply uh, or in the deficits that the government runs to fund, for example, President Biden's program, this will cause inflation. They don't know that. It is false to say that you can tell this in advance. It depends on very many other circumstances. And here's two more key issues. We've been pumping money into the economy at unprecedented rates since as far back as 2000 and certainly since the crash of 2008. People then predicted it might cause an inflation, or if they got carried away, they insisted that it would. Well, it didn't, because other factors intervened, all kinds of them, and it didn't happen. There's no reason to wonder about that now in terms of predicting the future. And the dishonesty comes in when Mr. Summers or the Republicans or conservative Democrats begin to fight against Mr. Biden's effort to have the government finally help the American people by predicting these terrible outcomes, they know better. They know that for every historical example where extra money led to an inflation, there are other examples where it did not. And unless they have a crystal ball that predicts the future, they don't know any better than the rest of us whether that will happen. They're using a possibility pushing it as a certainty for their political ends, which is to block Biden from doing the kinds of bold interventions that many of us think are already urgent needs.
3: Amen. So it seems to me, first of all, that one of the things that produces inflation, as you said, is more money chasing goods and services than there are. One of the major factors that produced the hyperinflation that we saw, or the high inflation anyway, in the late 70s and early 80s, was the consequence of the late, you know, actually it started, I think, in the late 60s, was a consequence of the Arab oil embargo, which reduced the supply of oil in the United States and thus bid up the price massively. And because pretty much everything in our economy operates on oil, that inflation from that oil price spike, in fact, there were two of them, there were two different times that the Arabs cut us off, kind of echoed through the economy. And it seems that a parallel to that, to use your example, if you're putting money in at the bottom up, Average working people just going out and buying a lunch at McDonald's or a new pair of jeans is not going to create that kind of inflation. But if you do it from the top down like Trump did with a one and a half trillion dollar tax cut for billionaires, they're going to put that money in the stock market. And the stock market has been exploding since we had the Bush tax cuts and the Trump tax cuts. And it looks like that might be kind of a local island of inflation. I'm wondering if you can address those two things in the three and a half minutes we have left
4: absolutely that's where all this money has gone that's part of the reason why there hasn't been an inflation in the way these conservatives predict in goods in buildings in land and all of that because the money went into the hands of people who don't buy goods and services but who use their money instead to move pieces of paper amongst them bidding up their prices and collecting the capital gains so we have had an inflation only it's been limited to the stock market And the joke is that the very inflation that the money supply increase caused is then used not as a problem but as a sign that the quote-unquote economy is healthy which it is not a sign of but trump used it that way uh, hopefully you know counting on americans not understanding the logic here yeah if you help people at the bottom not only are you helping the people who need it most but you're also making it maximally likely that if people at the bottom have more money to spend the decision of businesses stores for example will be to say okay with my customers having more money in their pocket because the government helped them i can order more goods and services to sell to them for that money that will get you the extra output that will avoid an inflation and by the way that will also create many more jobs than moving paper around the stock market ever could or ever did
3: so did the arab oil embargoes produce the inflation of the 70s and 80s or were there other factors
4: They are among the many factors. If you increase the money supply a great deal at the same time that for other reasons the price of something basic like oil is going up, yeah, then you have two factors, both of which together might be able to generate an inflation that neither of them could by themselves. The parallel example now is the fact that we are more and more dominated by monopolies in the communications industry, in the finance industry, in the oil industry and so on. And those monopolists are pushing up prices. That's one of the reasons Amazon and things like that are doing so well. And as that filters through, now that everybody uses the Amazon, the Microsoft, the Apple, and so on, then you could have that push from the prices going up because these monopolists are able to do now across the board what the oil business did back in the 60s and 70s.
3: Yeah. So the solution, it appears, is that we need to get money into the hands of people who are in need and stop pouring it into the money bins of the rich.
4: Yes. And here's an irony you might enjoy and your audience as well. The last time a president realized that he had to Stick money into the economy but he didn't want to risk an inflation the man's name which may surprise you was Richard Nixon and what he did was to create a wage price freeze if you pump in money but you forbid businesses to raise prices you guarantee that the extra money will generate more product because you've blocked out the route of inflation uh, to the businesses who make those decisions
3: Professor Richard Wolf, I always learn something from you. Thanks so much for dropping by.
4: Okay, Tom, thank you.
3: Ron in Encino, California. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today?
0: I just wanted to address the big lie that's been going on around the world through the form of foreign aid for the last 60 years. We've forced governments around the world in Africa to privatize everything, social services, all this stuff. So. We perfected that for 60 years, and now we've turned it on ourselves, the
5: corporations.
3: Yeah. You know why? Reagan was taking, uh, you know, Reagan was selling weapons to Iran in exchange for holding the U.S. hostages to screw Jimmy Carter. And then he took that money and he sent it down to right-wing death squads in Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala. And the reason he was doing that was because all three of those countries had governments that wanted to provide national health care systems, and free college education. That was at the core of what they were proposing. And we went in and destabilized these three countries for that reason. And so, yeah, Ron, I'm totally with you, and it's a horrible, horrible thing. We've run out of countries, and now we're doing it to ourselves. We're letting the corporations yeah, there you do go. the same thing. Yeah. But a dictator First we ate control. the weak, now we're eating ourselves. <laughs> Yes. Yep. Thank I'm with you, Tom. you. Ron, thank you. Great to hear from you. Jake in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jake, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching Free Speech TV.
4: Hey, thanks for putting me on, Tom. I've got a quick question for you. When you were talking about Kroger and its poor folks trying to get that food, just wondering, you referred to other countries didn't have that problem. I assume you were speaking of other democracies around the world, like maybe Norway Correct. and
6: Sweden, somewhere like that, now, what do they do to minimize the wealth inequality in those countries?
3: They have a top tax rate in uh, Germany, France, all, all across Scandinavia that's over 50%. So very wealthy people, when they start getting close to that tax bracket, stop taking income and keep that money in their businesses and pay their people better. They have higher minimum wage. They have uh, heavy rates of unionization. I mean, in large parts of Northern Europe, you've got unionization rates around 80%. At its peak in the United States in 1980, we were at about 30%. and those. Things 30%. things collectively balance the power of great wealth. And also they don't allow money into politics. They don't allow billionaires to own their politicians. And so those are the things in aggregate that basically minimize wealth inequality. Mike in Dickinson, North Dakota. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today?
6: Hello, Tom. Uh, Basically from what I see, I see America no longer as a first world country image I have in my mind of what a third world country is, I don't believe we're there either, but what would your definition be of a second world country, and is, is that what you think we are?
3: Well, the old first, second, third world country definitions used to be that the first world was fully developed countries like the United States and Western Europe. The second world was the communist countries the soviet union and china and and vietnam and and like that and then the third world countries were countries that were aspiring to be democracies or functional countries or not you know some of them called themselves communists but they were just like deeply in poverty the assumption at the time which turns out in retrospect to have been largely wrong was that those second world countries were not in deep poverty And as we found when the Soviet Union fell and, you know, people started and East Germany fell, they really should have been classified as third world countries if you're using economics as the scale. But in any case, what has happened to the United States? Yeah, I don't disagree with you that. I don't think that we could say that our entire country, you know, that America as a whole has become a third world country. But Reaganomics and Republican policies have caused large parts of America to be functionally third world countries. You have rates of hookworm, a disease associated with poor sanitation. You have rates of hookworm in Louisiana that are worse than some third world countries. There was a great piece about this in the New York Times a couple days ago. We have the per capita murder rate is the very highest in the United States is in in the former Confederate States. Places where you've got the most guns, you've got no health care, they have not expanded Medicare to this day, fewer people with access to Medicare, you've got the lowest minimum wages in the country, they're basically being run as little kingdoms for their political elites and their billionaire class, you know, the, the, the Waltons in, in uh, Arkansas and so on. And they fight labor unions like crazy. The destruction of any sort of middle class, and a middle class is what's necessary to make a first world country a first world country. So we've got large pockets of disaster in the United States, and then you've got parts of our cities where you know the, uh, where you've got large black populations that, for hundreds of years have suffered under open segregation and discrimination and redlining and all kinds of other problems. And to this day are economically challenged as a consequence of just plain old, good old fashioned racism. I mean, there's no other way to call it. You combine that with neo-feudalist policies, the ways that these uh, former Confederate states are being run, and uh, it, you know it's a major crisis for the United States. Not so much in blue states, not so much in Massachusetts, not so much in New York, not so much in California, not so much in Oregon or Washington state. Blue states seem to be doing fairly well, but the red states are sinking deeper and deeper into poverty and, and, and worse and worse into childhood hunger, and, and they're having infant mortality rates and death rates that are, in many cases, commensurate with third world countries, and put us at the very bottom of the 34 OECD countries. So yes, in in summary, yes, absolutely right. Mike, thanks for the call. Albert in Honolulu. Hey, Albert, what's up?
0: It's interesting you had Richard Wolf on because I'm a writer myself. I'm not an economist, but I'm a writer. And last year I was on a couple of shows discussing the impact of the economy, American economy, and what's been exposed because of coronavirus. And I tend to look at it from a three-tier position historically. The first is Richard Nixon's removal of the U.S. from the Bretton Woods system. The second is in relation to the 1971 memo by uh, Lewis Powell to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And the third is the 1974 petrodollar deal. I see those three as hmm. sort of the triumvirate that have shaped the U.S. economy.
3: And what we see in the U.S. economy- I would not disagree with any of them. Oh, I agree. Okay. Ten seconds to finish your thought, Albert. That's why I think why we're having this
0: sort of high profit, low wage economy in the United States. Yeah, those are historical.
3: Yeah, facts. I'm with you. And 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 Lewis Powell laid it out, and uh, every every certainly every Republican president since then, and and Republican Congress has followed it. Albert, brilliant analysis. Thank you very much. We'll be back 45 minutes past the hour.
2: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
3: I would say the most arguable of Albert's three it was uh, Nixon in the 70s. But, you know, it's worth a discussion. Daniel in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Daniel, what's up? Uh, I just wanted to have, a, you know, a, a kind of a brief three point overview
6: about wealth inequality and uh, get what your thoughts on it are. Go for it. I mean, if- Okay, well, you know, the first point is, you know, that the major point is, is that you know, wealth inequality is not going to be addressed until the income tax system is rationalized, in some type of a logical way. I mean, taxes are point number one is taxes are what we pay for government goods and services. I mean, that's indisputable. What those services are is the political debate. You know, the, the second major point is, until they start treating all income the same it doesn't matter what the income is a buck is a buck is a buck whether you get it from salary and wages or capital gains or food stamps or yeah.
3: how is it that donald trump force? claims to be a millionaire with a with a billionaire with a multi-million dollar a year income and in uh, over an 18-year period he paid 750 dollars in total in income taxes how the hell does that happen
6: well i agree i mean david k johnson who helped the new york times write stuff as an expert he's been following trump for decades now and have some incredibly revealing stuff about Trump. But until they broaden the tax base to treat all income the same, you just don't really have anything to work with. I mean, that's a major source of inequality. Um, And until they're willing to fix that, and I mean, it could lower taxes because the base is so much broader. I mean, that's point number two. But the third point, and this is what I'm interested in, you know, my idea is that you need to have one tax category for everybody and that's a corporate tax. That would eliminate a lot of problems. It doesn't matter whether you're a charity, whether you're corporate America, whether you're an individual, whether you're a trust fund, once you put everything into one tax category, uh you can't manipulate the system as much and it makes things a lot fairer. I'm mean, sure you're going to have a progressive tax, but for individuals, you can define an individual as a corporation for one keep track of the revenue, keep track of the expenses. Until you do something like that, nickel and diming the changes with whatever the politician is, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or whatever, is never going to fix things. Yeah.
3: So, well, you know, until 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 the Reagan revolution, the top corporate tax rate was over 50%. Um, the top exactly. personal income taxers was over 50%. It was 51% for corporations. It was 74% for individuals in 1980 when Reagan came into power. And, and uh, you know, when Reagan dropped both those numbers, right now the top corporate tax rate is 21% with literally millions, well, I don't know if it's literally millions, with certainly hundreds of thousands of potential loopholes that corporations can employ to get that number down so that, you know, I, I read that long list yesterday of corporations who not only didn't pay taxes, but you and I gave them money. Uh, you know, we sent hundreds of millions no, of dollars I mean, to
6: absurd, them. but, you know, I mean, Elizabeth Warren had one good idea which has a lot of merit. I mean, some of her ideas are not workable in life. Are you life. talking the
3: wealth tax or are you talking the step tax?
6: Neither one of those. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's proposition was that it's absurd for corporations to be able to report billions of dollars in profit in their Wall Street financials and billions of dollars in losses on their tax return. Her proposition right. was the standard is generally accepted accounting principles. That's what you use for financial reporting. That's what you use for your tax returns. And that makes imminent sense to me. I happen to be a CPA.
3: (laughs) Okay. Steve in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind?
6: I have a friend who is a good liberal as opposed to
0: progressive. Gets most of his news from the New York Times. And it's so frustrating to talk to him because his heart's in the right place, you know. But he, uh, he says that he likes some things that Republicans say, and that we should try to get along with them and and talk to them. And I said, well, like, what's something that you like about the Republicans? And he said, fiscal responsibility. And I know that that they're not fiscally responsible, but I was hoping you could give me a good uh, retort or reply to him about that issue. Yeah,
3: what what was fiscally responsible about Ronald Reagan taking the national debt from $800 billion when he was elected to $2.4 trillion when he left office? Um, You know, and and that was all because of massive tax cuts he gave to billionaires and and wealthy people. What's fiscally responsible about George W. Bush having two wars that he didn't even include in his budgets that each cost over a trillion dollars? The war in Iraq cost us so far over two trillion dollars. And the war in Afghanistan is is approaching that Um, and, you know, never budgeted to have them paid for. What's fiscally responsible about George W. Bush having over two trillion dollars in tax cuts that are off? budget, you know, inflating. I mean, George W. Bush inflated the the, the, the uh, national debt massively. What was fiscally responsible about one and a half trillion dollar tax cut for rich people by Donald Trump when one and a half trillion dollars is the exact amount as all the student debt in the United States, which is holding back an entire generation of young people from getting married, buying houses and starting their lives. What's fiscally responsible about that? That's insane. That's not fiscal responsibility. Steve, I got to run. I can You're give there, you a examples, but I'm sorry we're out of time. That's a good start though. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro-kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple-glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two ends, or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com Hartman. Jeff in Columbia, Missouri. Hey, Jeff. What's on your mind?
0: Hey, Tom. I wanted to talk about quantitative easing, a process by which, my understanding is, the Federal Reserve can simply create money, can create um, money, and then uh, Joe Biden talked about canceling student debt, and my understanding was is he was going to use that mechanism to do it, much as was proposed by the Green Party candidate in 2016, and. Um, And, of course, if I understand correctly, was used to create, I I believe, $15 trillion, or about 10 times the amount of uh, all student debt, to pay off the uh, investor class when the the economy collapsed in 2008. So I wonder if you could amplify on on those things.
3: I don't have the specific numbers at at my fingertips, but the amount of money that was created in 2008 by the Fed to bail out banksters was multiple trillions of dollars. It was absolutely massive. And what they did with that money, we were horrified to learn years later, was they paid themselves huge bonuses. (laughs) Which is, I mean, literally multi-million dollar, and in some cases, multi-billion dollar bonuses to to individual banksters and their families and friends and everything else. Um, uh, Quantitative easing is part of the process of the Fed. Um, you know, uh, buying and selling treasuries, and, which is how they, in theory, regulate interest rates, but also how they regulate the size of our money supply. Uh, I'm not sure specifically how quantitative easing necessarily ties into the student loan debt, and I don't have any specific information suggesting that, that Biden or any of the Democrats were suggesting that the $1.5 trillion in student loan debt out there be reduced by the Fed doing it. But it could be done that way. I mean the, the you know the, the and this is this is something that Stephanie Kelton talks about you know in modern monetary theory the fed creates but if you if you wanted to wipe out the the federal debt you know the federal government has the ability to, to denominate currency to de, or or coinage rather they can define the value of individual coins she suggested that they mint a dozen 1 trillion dollar coins and then simply redeem them you know with the fed and pay off the pay off the national debt there's a lot of conversation about that but not going to happen. I mean, the the Fed has been explicitly using this funny money that they create. Most recently, I believe it's $7 trillion was created last year in response to the COVID crisis. And all of that money was used, virtually all of that money was used to either buy corporate bonds, which is, in other words, to loan money to corporations, bond issuing is how corporations borrow money, And, and to buy corporate stock to maintain the value of the stock market. And the current Fed chair is continuing that policy. And, and the United States is not unique in this, by the way. The Japanese began this more than, you know, almost two decades ago. Uh, the European Union is doing it now. The Central Bank of, of the UK is doing it. There was a piece in the Financial Times over the last three or four days uh, saying that global debt right now is 350 times, or 350% of, 3.5 times global GDP. Which is pretty mind-boggling. Here in the United States, our federal debt is almost equal to GDP. Now, it surpassed GDP back at the end of World War II. It was 129 percent of GDP. It was, you know, our, our federal debt was greater than you know the entire output of our country. But that was also, you know, what it took to fight World War II and defeat the Nazis and the and the fascists in Japan and Germany, Italy and Spain. Um, whether and, and that debt got paid off, by the way, by Dwight Eisenhower borrowing even more money to stimulate the economy by building the interstate highway system and new hospitals and new schools and, and roads and airports and infrastructure and just you know providing a launching pad for American business, which is what the Green New Deal is all about. Um, but uh, I, frankly, I think that if the Fed is going to generate seven trillion create out of thin air, seven trillion dollars, as they've done in the last year, and use that money to bail out giant corporations, monopolistic corporations, and 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 keep the stock market high, so that wealthy people's investments. You know, keep in mind, eighty percent of the stock of all stock in the United States is owned by the top ten percent of Americans. Um, that if the Fed is going to do that, the Fed ought to be able to create a trillion and a half dollars out of thin air and use it to pay off student loan debts, uh, at the very least. And yeah. uh, you know we need to we need to have a conversation in this country, which we're not having about this relationship between the Treasury and and our national debt and the Fed and the way that it creates money and alters the money supply in order to benefit the investor class and the corporate class pretty much exclusively and why are these tools that the Fed has not being used to benefit average working people? Why are they not being used to reduce student loans? Why are they not being used to make America a better and safer place to live? Why are they not being used to rebuild this country? Instead, they're just being used to bail out banksters and, and United Airlines. I don't, I don't. well, I don't, I was going to say I don't get it. I do get it. I know what's going on. Um, I think we all get it, but it needs to change. Jeff, thank you. Thanks for raising an important issue. Hitting the bottom of the hour here on the Tom Hartman program, taking back the mainstream media with talk media for the rest of us. It's the place where we dare to say, is Walmart a person? And we dare to say, no, not a chance. You're
2: listening to the Tom Hartman program.
3: And now there's Amazon or IBM or Microsoft or any of these other companies that seem to manage not to pay any taxes like you and I have to, but still claim their persons. Peggy in Newburgh, Indiana. Hey, Peggy, what's on your mind today?
1: I just am trying to figure out why DeJoy is still in his position and he's still up to his dirty tricks. Uh, They're talking about raising the prices stamps again and all of this. He's still working in the background and people aren't paying attention.
3: I agree. I agree. And I'm outraged about it. And there's several members of Congress who are trying to do something about this. Um, the, the situation, unfortunately, is that or for, you know, for wh- whatever, this is just the situation. The post office, like Amtrak, is not a division of our government. It's a separate standalone corporation that the government essentially owns all the stock in. And so it's not like Louis DeJoy, as Postmaster General, is like the Secretary of Defense, you know, or, or, or you know, some functionary in the Department of uh, Homeland Security or something, where the President can simply say, you're out. Um, instead, he's an employee of a corporation that has a board of directors. That board of directors is called the Postal Board of Governors. There are, as I recall, 10 members on that board right now. Three of them are Democrats and seven are Republicans. Again, if my, I'm doing this from memory, but I'm pretty sure I'm right and if i'm off it's by one it might be 4 and 8 but i'm pretty sure it's 3 and 7 the appointment those appointments had not been made during the obama administration the obama administration kind of overlooked that and there was you know uh, apparently some obstruction from from mcconnell in the senate although I'm, I'm not real clear on the details of that but the bottom line is uh, donald trump came in and was able to appoint all 10 members of the postal board of governors the postal board of governors then hires the postmaster general and they're the only ones who can fire the postmaster general unless there is cause and uh, i would argue that by destroying over 600 high-speed sorting machines multi million dollar machines across the country slowing down the mail uh, damaging the mail in order to, uh, to uh, cause Americans to lose confidence in our postal system so that we will go along with privatizing our postal system and selling the whole thing to FedEx or UPS, one of these big Republican donors, um, I, would, I would argue that that is an abrogation of their job, that is a, a failure to perform their duties, that is, um, you know, uh, a firing offense. And that Joe Biden needs to fire all 10 of the members of the Postal Board of Governors and install his own Postal Board of Governors who can then fire Louis DeJoy. Again, for cause. And I think this can be done. Uh, there has been legislation nationally introduced into Congress. I don't know if it's a law or if it's a resolution, but calling for this to be done. And uh, it's one of those things where we need to devote some activism to it. And we need to let uh, uh, President Biden know that this is important to all of us, uh, you know, frankly, because I, I think that if it just continues to fester, it's going to get worse and worse. Peggy, thank you for raising a really important issue. Randy in Gardnerville, Nevada. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind?
6: With regard to the student loan program over the years, I've often wondered, would it be a bone of contention about how the creditors are made whole? I mean, if you're going to get it passed, you've got to get by that.
3: Oh, the easy way you do that is you just pay off the loans. Who pays off the loans? Well, you know, the federal government borrowed one and a half trillion dollars in 2017 to give tax breaks to billionaires and big corporations. One and a half trillion dollars, by the way, is the exact same amount as all of the student debt in America combined. So all you have to do is reverse Trump's tax cut. You have one and a half trillion dollars in additional revenue. You take that money and we were doing just fine before Trump's tax cut. And it didn't stimulate the economy. It just made a lot of rich people even richer. So you just reverse Trump's tax cut going forward. You're going to have another one and a half trillion dollars in a year or two that you didn't have before, and you use that to pay off everybody's student loans, make the lenders whole. As I recall, about 60% of that is federally unwritten loans, and the ones that are loans specifically from the federal government could be forgiven, you know, without having to be paid off. But I, I think that's a very small minority. I think most of them are agencies and and whatnot that are backstopped by the federal government, and those would have to be paid off. Does that make sense, Randy?
0: Yeah, uh, no, I understand. I can get behind all that. Thanks for making it clear.
3: PJ in uh, Shishun City, California. Hey, PJ, what's up? Tom, I'd like your opinion on interest rates. uh,
0: When I was in college 30 years ago, I had Tom Leary as my economics professor, and we were talking about, uh, I was always taught that we needed to have a, um, a modest Uh, inflation rate of about 5% in order to keep the economy moving. Uh, Somewhere along the line, uh, you know, 12 years ago, we were at about 5%. And in the last 12 years, everything's gotten down to, I guess now it's about a half percent is the best you can get on a CD. And I'd like your thoughts on on the wisdom and, and if there's any... How can you have a growing economy if you're stagnant on inflation? What's your opinion, please?
3: I I confess to a certain ambivalence about this, PJ. For people who are savers, um, a high inflation rate and thus high interest rates is a good thing because you can put money in a CD and, and make money on that. For people who are borrowers, it's a bad thing. It's a tax, essentially, on borrowers. And one of the reasons that governments like to have a small but regulated level of inflation, typically around two percent, is because what that means is that if you borrow money right now and you pay it back 20 years from now, every year what you have to pay back is reduced by two percent in its value. The money, the money, the value of the money decreases over time, and uh, we've kind of gotten used to that. But look back at the, you know the minimum wage in the 1960s was a buck 20, buck 23, as I recall. And, you know, and now it's 750, and we want to take it to $15. That's a reflection of the loss of value of our currency, also known as inflation, as reflected by interest rates. Well, I, I don't know how I to reconfigure that. all this, PJ, but...
0: I understand ahead. that, and, and I concur with, with, right now, with COVID and everyone having lost their jobs, you know, to increase prices on everything was, would seem to be a bad thing, but however... Um Right now, the people that are making money on my savings are the super rich, and i 'm sure. not making any 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 return on the money that they are borrowing essentially from me when I put my money in their banks right.
3: the reason and, the, and the principal if, 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 reason why the Fed is trying to keep interest rates so low has to do with debt it has to do with the fact that corporate debt in America is absolutely massive i 'm sorry i don 't know i don 't recall the number right off the top of my head, but it 's it's a large fraction of national GDP, and the federal debt is approaching 100% of GDP. And so, what that means is that I mean, right now we're spending six, seven hundred billion dollars a year paying the interest on the national debt. It's 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 approaching what we pay for military spending which is substantial, so you know, 10% of the, yeah. uh, of the uh, federal budget. Uh, actually, I think that would be about, like 20% of the federal budget. So if interest rates were to double the amount of interest that we have to pay to ourselves, essentially, but the amount of interest that would have to be paid, which would a- actually increase the, f- the federal debt, would, would double as well. Also, there's a lot of corporations right now that are essentially zombie corporations, and they are only living on debt, and they would just collapse. So if the interest rates were to go to 2% right now, which is the Fed target, I think that you would see a massive failure of uh, particularly state and local governments and of many large corporations, and they're just not willing to take that chance. It's like a Ponzi scheme. I mean, I I don't see any, any good way out of it, PJ. I really don't.
2: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: At some point, I think we're going to have to have Bretton Woods too, you know, where, where basically the world sits down and says, How do we reconfigure this economic system to be just?
5: about Medicare? And let's talk about what could be done now and what we know is heavy lifting through li- admitted legislation. So we know Medicare for All is heavy lifting. The other one that I don't know why Republicans don't hate, actually, I do because they get so much money from pharmaceuticals. Is giving Medicare the same rights that the VA has to negotiate drug prices?
3: Yeah, Bernie released this study a couple of days ago showing that the VA is paying one third as much as Medicare does for for pharmaceuticals, and we're talking so, hundreds of billions I, of dollars here.
5: Right. So I, I do have to correct you on one other thing. On that, I've heard you talk about the timeline about Medicare and Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage was passed by Clinton in '98 as part of a reconciliation. Are you sure? Part D was passed by Bush. Yes. 1998.
3: Huh. I will have to look that up. Let me make a note. Thank you for that. And then they
5: added the part, they added the part D by Bush. And of course he I mean, that's in sicko. Michael Moore talks about it. Like how much money pharmaceutical got to put that clause in there about not being able to negotiate.
3: Oh yeah. I remember that well.
5: So that, okay. We're done with the heavy lifting. Things that can be done now. Katie Porter Who's my representative, lover, <laughs> um, is introducing legislation to, to get rid of the late enrollment penalty for Medicare. Mm-hmm. So, most people don't know this. If you don't do it in your initial election period and you don't have group health coverage, you have to wait for the general enrollment, which is January, through, January 1st through March 31st, and it won't go effective till July. And there's a 20% annual, 20%. Penalty for life. So if the premium's, I'm just using 150, I know it's like 155 right now. So they got to pay an extra 20 bucks every month for life. Okay. Right. So Katie's trying to get that fixed. But right. it used to be only 10%. And I'm one of the people I'm not going to.
3: Paul, you it's just faded out there. 10% to
5: 20. Uh, sorry. Can you hear me?
3: Try it. Yeah, just repeat your last sentence. We uh, lost you for a second.
5: Okay. So the former administration rates that from 10% to 20%. So that can be reversed. That was Trump. So there's some. That was, I'm not using the name Trump. I'm saying former yeah. administration. <laughs> okay. So that, that the, can that be A former fixed. guy, yeah. And the other yeah. thing, the other thing they did is stealthy. So if somebody, we're going back to the initial election period, when somebody turned 65, they put in mm. this stupid rule about two years ago, if somebody delayed, you know, you got three months before and three months after to start your Medicare, right? So your Part B. Mm. Right. So they put in this stupid thing that if you wait until after your birthday month, you it gets delayed two or three months. Why? <laughs> just like,
3: yeah it's all just so they're just, just you know it's all just ways of messing with your mind so that you'll be more inclined to go to Medicare Advantage and give your money to to some big insurance company
5: no, but I, I just think that's like something that can be fixed without heavy lifting
3: yeah you know yeah I agree that can be fixed I agree
5: right now and there's, yep. there's and stuff it would like be a that. very good, good thing yeah yeah separate these what's heavy lifting what's what can be done right now?
3: Yeah. yeah I and get I, it I totally get it, it. thank you Paul
5: if you could pass yeah, that yeah. off to Ro and I can't think of the guy named from Wisconsin but it, Mark Pokan us yeah. look at what can be done yeah Let's, yeah look,
1: and
5: what can in be done fact now. I think they're
3: both going to be on the show next week you might even want to call and talk to them Paul thank you thanks and thanks for the correction if uh, I, I'm going uh, you know Google this and, and track down 1998 Medicare Advantage Craig in Madison Wisconsin hey Craig what's up why is that I
6: called because of your statements with regard to tax cuts, Republican and Democrats have made big tax cuts to counter a phenomenon known as bracket creep, where as people make more money, they go into higher brackets, and the government has taken a larger portion of uh, money out of the
3: private economy. So yeah, which is a reasonable argument for changing tax brackets below you know, below certain thresholds. But that is not any kind of reasonable argument whatsoever for dropping the ta- top tax bracket, which stabilizes our economy from 74% when Reagan came into office down to 25%, which is where he took it in about three and a half years. He had to raise it back up himself to, into the low 30s just because it, you know, it was gutting our economy and, 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 and government income. My, my complaint is not. That, that, you know, somebody earning 40000 who goes into $43,000 suddenly has to pay an extra $40 a month or a year or whatever it may be in income taxes, and we should adjust that bracket. I'm fine with that, Craig, and I don't think anybody disputes that. My, my complaint is the top tax brackets, the very top tax brackets, they're not adjusted for, for bracket creep. They're, they're blown away. They're nuked. They've been taken off the table. You've got corporations that were, that were paying a third of the entire federal budget in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s that are now paying 6% of the federal budget. You've got company after company that's paying no taxes at all. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's nuts. In fact, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to dig into that in, in, in some more depth, I think, tomorrow. Um, but, well, in fact, here, I can, I can tell you right now, the, uh, oh, this is not it. I've got a list here somewhere of the companies that are not paying income taxes. Uh, Amazon's at the top of the list, not only not paying income taxes, they're getting huge, ta- they're getting huge piles of federal you know, money back. And, and there's like hundreds of them. And you know, Donald Trump, of course, was at the front of that line. So Craig, I get it. I get your argument. And it's the argument Republicans have made for years and years and years. And, and yeah, let's, let's adjust our tax code for bracket creep. No, no, no dispute there. But blowing away the top tax brackets, which is what's been done over and over and over again, is what Trump did too? No, I don't think that works. In fact, I know it doesn't work. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery,
2: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
3: And welcome back. Anything Goes Friday here on the Tom Hartman program in Nancy in Norcross, Georgia. Hey, Nancy, you're on the air. Thanks for watching us on Facebook Live. What's up? I'm about to open probably a can of worms. Um, no politician will talk about it,
1: but my question is concerning the tax exempt churches.
0: Mm hmm.
1: And the mega churches that are have raised so much money and don't have to pay taxes. And I'm not against churches and helping people in their community, up to a point. But why can't there be a cap on that, and then they be accountable for a a, a, a manual, a, a mandatory audit thereafter? Because so many of the mega churches have. Influenced uh, the, um, well, Trump administration. They've been influenced by it. And no politician will talk about uh, getting rid of the tax exempt on churches. So
3: if you have any insight,
1: I'd appreciate it.
3: Yeah, this is how Pat Robertson became a billionaire with a B. Um, this is how right. dozens of televangelists became multimillionaires with two M's, um, a- as well as the pastors of some of these very, very large churches. And, and how uh, Garner Ted Armstrong built an empire, right, uh, is all on tax exempt on their tax-exempt status, um, and even uh, as in the case of, uh, you know, Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, who's a, a Trump-humping hustler, and he's now on, on CNN every morning going, let's pray to Jesus together and then call our numbers so that we can hustle some donations from you, too. Um, it, it, these people are, They. they he's even, and, and his buddies, they're even basically having their housing uh, you know, exempt from taxes. I pay property taxes every year. Most Americans pay property taxes every year. Not the pastors of these churches. That's my rectory, don't you know? And uh, yeah. I think it's crazy. I, you know, I have no problem with giving a tax exemption to a monastery, to a group of people who've decided to live apart from society because they want to per- pursue spiritual practice. Um, But uh, frankly, if a monastery was incorporated as a for-profit corporation and it showed no profit at the end of the year, it wouldn't pay taxes anyway. And that's true of any church. If a church is not showing... See, see, you do the exact same kind of accounting for a for-profit corporation as you do for a non-profit corporation. You list all the income categories, you list all the expense categories, at the end of the year, there's something left over or there isn't. If there's something left over in a for-profit corporation, it's referred to as profit. If there's something left over in a non-profit corporation, it's referred to as the fund balance. In other words, the money that you carry forward into the next year because it's not subject to tans- taxation. Whereas a for-profit corporation, that profit is subject to tax and, you know, minus exemptions. So, you know, churches, in in my opinion, if a church is being run like a church, if it's being run to serve its people, if there's any mo- leftover money at the end of the year, rather than distributing it basically to or carrying it forward into the next year or, or distributing it to the pastor and, and you know, the, the senior elders of the church, Um, why not pay taxes on it? And, And the other thing is your taxes and mine, your property taxes and my property taxes are subsidizing fire and police and public lighting services and public roads that that all of these churches use and why aren't they paying their fair share for that? I mean, what's so, what's so sacred? I, I, I realize, you know, the, the strange use of that word, but you know, what's, uh, why, why is the, why, why are churches the golden calf? Why are they the thing that can't be touched? Why are they, you know, um, I'm with you, well, this, I, you know, this, I,
1: yeah, I, go ahead. Yeah. It, it's just, um, uh, is it, is it such that they found so many loopholes, uh, to get past. It, it
3: goes back to the I mean, 1950s, no. Nancy. In the 1950s there was this kind of religious revival in America. It was being led by by the Billy Graham types. I don't know if Billy Graham was part of it. Um, and that religious revival, I believe this is when Leonard Leo and uh, or maybe it's, I think it's him. Um, you know, when the when the family Got started this this group that Jeff Charlotte has written a book about called The Family and there's a four part series on on Netflix as I recall uh, about the family. In fact, I'm in it and uh, Jeff's been on this program a number of times, and I believe it was in the 1950s that they started the National Prayer Breakfast, and then they started reaching out, uh, uh, you know, inviting members of Congress to actually have housing. There, you've got a bunch of Republican members of Congress. Uh, they, on E Street, there's this big old mansion in, uh, or, or row house, uh, you know, fancy row house in Washington, D.C. that's owned by The Family, which is a nonprofit organization. And so they don't pay taxes and they they give like super cheap rent, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month to these members of Congress wow. who want to live there. And, uh, you know, they're calling it their church, their rectory, whatever they call it. And and it's it's this is when we started seeing Christian hustlers who don't believe in democracy. And this is the thing that Jeff Charlotte lays out in, in that documentary that that is just shocking oh, over on Netflix um, uh, it called The Family. Uh, that, that they, they literally think that we should have strongman government, the uh, Donald Trump kind of government that, you know, where, where the, the will of the people be damned. We know what's right. God told us what's right. We're going to use biblical principles, etc. And they have extraordinary influence over the Republican Party and some influence over the Democratic Party. And back in the 50s, as they were acquiring power, one of the things they got was massive tax exemptions for churches. And Lyndon Johnson was the Senate Majority Leader at the time. And he stepped up and he said, "Uh, that's okay, we'll give you that tax exemption unless you engage in politics. If you mess in our territory, if you mess in politics, you're gonna lose your tax-exempt status. And churches respected that from the 1950s up until 2000, up until the George W. Bush presidency. And in 2000, George W. Bush started actively reaching out to those churches, they started actively reaching back out to him in that 2000 election. I mean, they had been to a smaller extent prior to that, but this was when there was actually a movement for right-wing churches to openly preach politics from the pulpit and defy the Internal Revenue Service and say, we're going to ignore the law, which, by the way, is anti-biblical. I mean, you know, the guy came to Jesus and said, yeah. you know, uh, who should who should I follow, right? And, you know, with his coin, should I pay taxes? And Jesus said, you know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and give unto God what is God's. In other words, follow the law, pay your damn taxes, and then, you know, get on about your business of being a religious person, a good person. And uh, But, you know, they, they ignore that. And we now have pastors preaching on on right-wing radio. You know, there's like 1,500 right-wing talk show hosts who are purely political. There's probably another 1,500 religious show, you know, religious stations, radio stations around the country. And, uh, you know, in fact, back in the 70s when Louise and I lived in Detroit, I used to listen to one of them when I would drive to work at RCA every morning. Um, I was very into religion at that time and they never talked about politics never ever not a word but now you tune these these stations in and their politics is like every other sentence and they should be losing their tax-exempt status immediately these churches should be that have been openly defying the law for 20 years now should be losing their tax-exempt status and frankly i think the tax code needs to be rewritten and you know if churches don't want to pay taxes don't show a profit at the end of the year don't show a fund balance at the end of the year but uh i'm with you nancy and i mean and i'm, I'm going how how can go ahead
1: how, how how can we
3: get something done about this it's, it's like a mammoth
1: you know problem
3: yeah uh, well there, you know there's a system. lot of people who follow these folks and uh and they're politically active and they've got their tentacles inside the republican party and to some extent inside the democratic party and, and it's hard for any politician to come out and say that they're, uh, you know, in opposition in any way to organized religion, particularly Christian religion. And oh, yes. uh, so I, I think any effort to do this would be met with howls and screams and things. And that would almost have to be part of a more comprehensive overhaul of our tax code. Um, but a starting point. Just a simple starting point, Nancy, would be to put teeth yeah. into the into the Johnson Amendment, into the law that says that uh, churches lose their tax-exempt status, and make it retroactive. Although I, I, you can't pass ex post facto laws, you can't pass really re- retroactive laws. Um, but uh, I, so I guess we can't do that. But in any case, put teeth into this law so that when churches are violating the tax code, when they are violating the law, when they are violating the agreement that the churches made with the federal government back in, I think it was 1956, um, but it was in the mid-50s, um, that, that they lose their tax-exempt status and they have to start paying taxes. Very straightforward. And, and, uh, you know, and the IRS should be, uh, should be paying attention to this. There should be a division within the IRS paying attention to this. So how do we get there? Uh, you know, I think, again, you know, being active in your local Democratic Party, um, trying to get that onto the platform, some of the county and, and state party platforms that, you know, we want at least at the very least, we want the Johnson Amendment to be enforced. So that, you know, churches can't participate in politics if they want to maintain their And the, and the churches, when you, whenever you say this, they go, oh my God, you're trying to gag me No, we're not trying to gag you, we're just saying if you want to break the law, pay your damn taxes it's, it's not like we're talking about sending preachers to jail I mean, that's how they behave, right? Like, oh, they're gonna That is one of the issues that is so rarely discussed that is a political weapon Republicans are using it should be discussed more.
2: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
3: We were talking a little bit ago about, you know, somebody called up and said, well, you know, um, we have to lower taxes to deal with bracket creep. And, and yeah, I, you know, I don't disagree in principle. And I mentioned that I have a list of, uh, you know, who's paying taxes and who isn't. Uh, this is from publicintegrity.org, the Center for Public Integrity. You can, they have a news, newsletter that you can sign up for. It's, uh, it's free. There's no ads or anything. In fact, I'm, I'm on their list, which is how I got this. They point out that last year, actually they're looking at 2018, that's that's the last year that we, that we can look at the tax returns for companies that were filed in 2019, you know, because you filed the year after. So we're looking at 2018, and uh, these companies collectively made 79, and I'm going to go through the list of companies in a minute, made, collectively made $79 billion in U.S. pre-tax income. Now, if you made even, even, even $50,000, $100,000, I mean, if you made some money, some serious money, you would have to pay taxes on it. If you make ten dollars or $15,000, you have to pay taxes on it. You'll, you'll recall Ronald Reagan doubled the payroll tax on working-class working people in order to help you know, fund his billion-dollar uh, bailout and tax cut for, for rich people. So they made $79 billion in in income, in profits. And they should have paid at the 21% corporate tax rate on that $79 billion. They should have paid $16 billion in taxes. Right? Wouldn't you think? A million dollars, 16,000 times. But that's not what happened. Instead, they blew a $20 billion hole in the federal budget. I mean, here's the list. It's very straightforward. Amazon.com made $10 billion in profits. And instead of paying taxes, they received money back from the federal government. Their tax rate was a negative 129%. Delta Airlines made $5 billion in income. Their effective tax rate was minus 4%, Amazon's was minus 1%, excuse me, I misspoke, minus 1%, Delta Airlines was minus 4%. Chevron made four and a half billion dollars in profits. They got money back too. Their effective tax rate was minus 4%. See, if you, let's say you made $10,000 last year and your effective tax rate was minus 1%, you would have gotten $100 from the government, not paid to the government, but from the government. Well, here Chevron got, you know, minus 4%. General Motors made $4.3 billion in profits in 2018. Their effective tax rate, minus 2%. They got money back from the federal government. EOG Resources, minus 7% tax rate. Occidental Petroleum, big oil producer, minus 1%. Honeywell International, 2.8 billion in, in profits. Not in income, in profits. Which is mind-boggling when you think about it, or not in revenue, but in income, in the actual profits. Um, uh, minus twenty, uh, you know, minus one percent. Uh, deer, right? They make tractors and things, I believe. Two point one billion dollars in income, minus twelve percent taxes. American Electric Power, one point nine billion dollars in income, minus two percent taxes. Principal Financial. Uh, big banking and and whatnot, 1.6 billion in income, minus 3% income. In other words, all every single one of these companies, instead of paying taxes, you and I, out of our tax dollars, we paid them through the federal government. Prudential Financial, they made 1.4 billion in in income, they received back, they they got an effective negative 24% tax rate. Excel Energy. They, I believe they own nuclear power plants, among other things. Uh, $1.4 billion in revenue, minus 2% tax rate. Devon Energy, another giant, $1.2 billion in revenue, minus 1% income tax. DTE Energy, $1.2 billion in, in, in income, minus 1% tax rate. Halliburton made over a billion dollars after Dick Cheney saved them with all these corrupt no-bid uh, uh, contracts for the war in Iraq that he lied us into. Uh, they, made, they made over a billion dollars. And again, you and I paid Halliburton through our tax dollars. They, they, their effective tax rate was minus 2%. Netflix. $800 million dollars in income. Effective tax rate minus 3%. Whirlpool, $717 million in, in income. Effective tax rate minus 10%. Eli Lilly, the big drug maker, $598 million in income. This is the money left over. Now, what tax did they pay? Nothing. In fact, we they got back minus nine, they got back nine percent of that. You and I paid Eli Lilly. IBM got back sixty-eight percent of the $500 million they showed in profits. They didn't, you know, I mean, they got back money on top of that profit. All of these companies got to keep all of their profit, plus you and I with our tax dollars subsidized them. And the list goes on, IBM, Goodyear Tire, Penske Automotive, Aramark, AECOM Technology, Tech Data, Performance Food Group, Electronics. on and on it goes. This is the sources, the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy mind-boggling
2: you're listening to the tom hartman program
3: and people wonder why when donald trump says he's going to tax the rich and bernie sanders says i'm going to tax the rich people get excited about it and vote for them
2: listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. One, two,
4: three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what
2: number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader.